0: Section 17 of History of the New York Times, 1851 to 1921, by Elmer Holmes Davis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Joanne Turner. Part 2, Chapter 5, The Times in the War, 1914 to 1918. Part 1. To the biggest news story of modern times, the American press as a whole reacted in a manner highly creditable. It would almost be safe to say that there was not a single newspaper in the country which was not a better paper, from the technical point of view, at the end of the war than at its beginning. That is to say, its editors knew more about what news was, how to get it, and how to present it to their readers. Also, the great majority responded honorably to the secondary, but sometimes highly important duty of interpreting and clarifying the news by editorial comment. Most of the influential papers of the country understood at the outset at least the general causes of the war, and were able to assess rightly the responsibility for its outbreak. In general, the service of the times during the war consisted in its doing what the other papers, or most of the other respectable papers, did, but doing it better. The merit of its war news is sufficiently well known. It was thanks chiefly to the excellence and the universal scope of its news service that the circulation of the paper, which was about 250,000 at the beginning of the war, had risen to some three hundred and ninety thousand at its close but it should not be forgotten that the times in editorial analysis of the causes of the war was amazingly accurate from the very outset so accurate that it brought down on itself almost at once the wrath of the germans and their sympathizers and within a few months had earned the honourable distinction of being the principal focus of the vituperation which the Germans and pro-Germans fired at an unsympathetic American press. The news department of a paper should not be, and that of the Times is not, influenced by editorial policies, but it is sometimes forgotten by amateur critics of journalism that the editorial page has a function going somewhat beyond the mere assertion of opinion. It is often the duty of the editorial writers to interpret the news, to discriminate between the probable and the improbable, the tendentious and the more or less impartial, in the great volume of news reports which come to the office. Since human nature is fallible, it has been found advisable to print all the news and leave to the editorial page the assessment of its relative worth, rather than exercise discrimination at the news desk and suppress everything that fails to accord with the news editor's judgment of the probabilities. The general reader may disagree with the editorial interpretation. That is his privilege, for it is presented only as an interpretation but editorial writers are somewhat better informed than the average reader. They probably know more of the news than he does, for they read half a dozen papers a day, where he reads one or two. A newspaper prints all the news it gets, so long as that news is not libelous, but a single paper does not always get it all. But the editorial writers have read much outside of the daily papers, they have a background of solid information which enables them to understand a good deal that is dark to the man in the street. Elucidation, based on wider and more thorough knowledge, is probably the most important function of the editorial page today. There has rarely been a better example of the performance of this function than the Times' editorials on the outbreak of the war. Information available then was far from complete. It consisted only of vague and scanty official statements on the diplomatic exchanges. The accounts of the secret conferences in which every government of Europe was going over the situation in the last week of July 1914, as well as the story of much of the actual diplomatic negotiation, did not come to public knowledge till much later. But after the lapse of seven years, despite all the voluminous publication of secret archives which, since the armistice, has informed the world of what went on behind the scenes in those days, there is not one line of the Times' editorial analysis of the responsibility for the war, written in the days when the war was being made, which would have to be retracted today. The Times, to be sure, like all the world, was slow to believe that the conflict that had been so long expected that it had come to seem impossible was at last at hand. It held the same hope that everybody held in the summer of 1914 in the moderating influence of financiers and businessmen, and above all, it believed, until belief was no longer possible, that the German Emperor had the will to avert the war, as he undoubtedly had the power. But the events of the week leading up to the declaration of war convinced the Times that Austria was responsible for the war in the sense that the criminal recklessness of Austrian statesmen had deliberately provoked it, and that Germany was responsible in that if the Kaiser had forbidden it, there would have been no war. On July 27, 1914, when Austria had refused to accept the Serbian reply to the ultimatum and had stood out before the world as plainly determined to fight, the Times said in an editorial article, quote, It will be freely said that Count Berkold has seized what seemed to him a most propitious moment for dealing a blow at Pan-Slavism and strengthening Pan-Germanism. And incidentally, reviving the German party in Austria, the only hope of peace seems to be in the awakening of the German conscience. Unquote. Four days later, when it was evident that the German conscience either had not awakened or was unable to affect the consciences of the rulers of Germany, the Times observed, quote, now is the very best of all times for taking account of the frightful wrong involved in governmental systems which permit great and prosperous peoples to be dragged into the war without consulting their will and their welfare, unquote. On August 2nd, the Times pronounced the famous speech of the German emperor about the sword which had been forced into his hand, quote, a piece of pompous humbug. Unquote. and after deploring the fact that evidently some european peoples even those which had been regarded as highly cultured were no more than a dumb herd which could be driven physically and psychologically where the leaders willed went on to say that quote, there is a possibility historically justified that a general european war would be followed by changes which would make the herd vocal Unquote. Four days later, it resumed this same argument, going so far as to make the prediction, later sustained in every particular, that the war was very likely to result in revolution in Russia, revolution in Germany, and the breakup of Austria-Hungary. Again, on August 6, the Times observed that while every nation going into the war found plenty of excuse for justifying its course of action. Quote, the historian will have no trouble in placing his finger on the cause of the war, and there are men in Vienna today whose descendants for many generations will redden at the verdict. Unquote. The peculiar German mind was, of course, not so well understood in those days. It takes a good deal to make the average German redden, even today, as the trials of war offenders at Leipzig showed. Nevertheless, even the Germans are likely to accept the truth of this judgment in time. The rest of the world has already ratified it. But in the summer of 1914, it did not command universal acceptance, even though the majority of Americans thought Germany in the wrong. The chief public service of the times in the war was that, from the very beginning, it understood where the rights and wrongs of the conflict lay. It was able to justify its position by sound argument, and it never ceased to maintain that position with all the vigor which its editors were able to command. The furious hostility toward the paper, which the Germans and their sympathizers soon displayed, is the best measure of its success in performing this duty. However, there was an equally important duty to be performed in giving to the public every bit of information as to the underlying causes, as well as the immediate occasion, of this vast and multiplex conflict. It is not too much to say that before the war had been going on three months, the Times had become the principal forum for debate on the issues of the war. Despite the fact that its editors were firmly convinced that Germany was in the wrong, the Times realized the necessity of hearing everything that could be said on both sides. As was said on the editorial page a few months after the war began, quote, access to its columns has been denied to no German sympathizer if reputable, responsible, and literate, unquote. Some of them, indeed, were neither reputable nor responsible. But if they seemed to have anything of value to contribute to the discussion, the Times heard them. The principal item in this discussion was unquestionably the publication in full of the arguments of the various European governments. The white papers, yellow books, orange papers, and so on, consisting of the diplomatic correspondence leading up to the outbreak of the war, or as much of it as the several governments were inclined to give out to the public. Long extracts from these were, of course, sent to the Times by cable as soon as they were issued, but it seemed to the Times that the importance of the issue made it imperative to present the whole case, or as much of it as the governments themselves had given out. The first copy of the British White Paper was brought to this country at the end of August 1914 by the Reverend Dr. Frederick Lynch, who had received it in advance of publication from an official friend just as he was boarding his steamer at Liverpool. He gave it to a Times reporter, and it was published in full on the following Sunday. The presses were still printing it, when, in the small hours of Sunday morning, Frederick William Weil, Berlin correspondent of the Times, arrived with a copy of the German white paper. A corps of translators was set to work at 2 a.m. By 10 o'clock Sunday evening, they had finished their task, and the document was printed in full in Monday Morning's Times. Thus, early in the war, the Times presented to its readers, on two successive days, all that was obtainable from official sources on both sides of the case. The two documents were reprinted in pamphlet form and distributed at cost to some hundreds of thousands of eager readers throughout the United States and Canada. After the British and German statements came the official documents of the French, Russian, Austrian, and Belgian governments, giving to the world what each saw fit to publish of its diplomatic records. And, having set the precedent, the Times published them all in full. Again, they were republished in tabloid form, and before the end of 1914, the Times was in effect running an extension university on the issues of the war. At that time, its war news was on the whole about the same as the war news of other papers, so far as related to the actual fighting. But from the very start, it surpassed all its competitors in giving the news about the reasons for the war. Here was the official brief of each government. It seemed to the management of the Times that the next thing was argument from the briefs an attempt was made to have eminent American lawyers discuss the White Papers as attorneys for the two governments. But this proved to be impossible, for the somewhat significant reason that the three or four American lawyers known to be sympathetic with Germany, or inclined to entire neutrality, who were asked to present the German side of the argument, refused to argue the German case, if they were restricted to the evidence put forward in these official documents. Clearly, they were able to realize that the German white paper presented a pretty poor case. When it proved impossible to present this debate, the publisher of the Times finally persuaded James M. Beck to analyze alone all the arguments, not as a representative of either side, but as an impartial reviewer. Mr. Beck was a former assistant attorney general of the United States and was one of the leaders of the New York Bar, but his discussion of the case presented by the White Papers before the quote, Supreme Court of Civilization unquote, made him internationally famous. Arguing from the briefs presented by the several governments, he reached the conclusion that Germany was in the wrong, and supported his opinion by an able and searching analysis. First presented in the Times of Sunday, October 25, 1914, his articles were reprinted in pamphlet form under the title of, quote, The Evidence in the Case, unquote, by several governments, notably the English, and millions of copies distributed over the world in many languages extracts and summaries of his argument were published the world over and gave to millions of readers the foundation for opinions which had been somewhat confused by the volume and the obscurity of the official documents second only in importance to the white papers and their like were the innumerable arguments conducted in the columns of the times by sympathizers of the two sides all papers had their share of such discussions, of course, but the Times had more of them and of more distinguished authorship. Notable among these were the letters exchanged between Charles W. Eliot and Jacob H. Schiff, published in the Times in December 1914, the arguments presented by G. K. Chesterton and various other British authors on the side of the Allies, and those of Dr. Bernhard Dernberg, Arthur von Briesen, Professor William Milligan Sloan, and Professor John W. Burgess on the German side. Throughout most of the war, military experts, usually officers either active or retired of the United States Army, analyzed each day the military operations from the technical standpoint. German sympathizers in the fall of 1914 complained that the military critics showed too much partisanship for the Allies, so for some months the Times published frequent comments on the military situation by a former officer of the German Army. All these discussions, of course, took place either on the editorial page or in the Sunday magazine, and were supplementary to the voluminous arguments which were part of the news of the day there were in addition a number of important contributions on the war as affecting purely american interests of which the most notable were a series by theodore roosevelt in the fall of 1914 on quote, what america should learn from the war unquote. The articles contributed toward the end of 1916 by a publicist who concealed his identity under the signature of Cosmos, and the later series, signed by, quote, an American jurist, unquote, who, as has since been announced, was Robert Ludlow Fowler, surrogate of New York County and one of the most accomplished scholars on the bench. In quieter times, Judge Fowler's series of brilliantly written articles would have been generally accepted as something of a classic. Of course, partisans of each side were often indignant that any space should be given to the other side, and because the Germans were Germans, their indignation was most violent and most inclined to the imputation of base motives. Before the war was two months old, a group of more or less authentic americans in munich saw fit to send to the german press a protest against the prejudiced and unfair attitude of the times which was duly sent abroad by the industrious german wireless before long the most notorious german propagandists in america were accusing the times of suppression of news and beginning that vast campaign of calumny which was taken up by the Socialists and Sinn Feiners when prudential motives imposed silence on the Germans later in the war, and joyfully resumed by the whole crew when they came out of their holes after the armistice. Every honest and patriotic American newspaper was the target of these attacks. The assertion that the whole American press had been bought by British gold seemed reasonable enough to persons who were unfamiliar with the idea of anything but a purchased press and these accusations against any paper were only proof that that paper was honestly and fearlessly doing its duty but the times was probably honored by more denunciation than any other paper in the country though the world and the tribune were close behind it in this honorable competition Fortunately, the American people were making up their minds, and most of them knew exactly what all this Teutonic clamor was worth. However, not all the criticism came from one side. Just as half a century before, some superheated northern patriots had accused the Times of sympathy with secession because it had a correspondent who sent the news from Charleston. So, in the World War, some sympathizers with the Allies could see nothing but sympathy with Germany in any inclination to give the Germans a hearing. In November 1914, for instance, a reverend clergyman wrote to the Times that he couldn't stand, quote, such dishes of German arrogance and insolence as you are serving daily to your readers, unquote. His emotional reaction was wholly creditable but he, and some others like him, forgot that it was highly important that the American people should learn what the Germans really were, and learn it by the most convincing and convicting evidence, that which proceeded out of their own mouths. It is possible that in the early months of the war the times gave up nearly as much space to German arguments as to those of the opposition, for the Germans saw from the first that the balance of opinion was against them, and they made desperate efforts in their tactful way to turn the scales. These arguments were apt to be convincing, but in the opposite direction, and anyway, the actions of the Germans always spoke louder than their words. Even before the Lusitania, the Germans had realized that their cause before American public opinion was lost, and had already begun to supplement their arguments and persuasions with sabotage and violence. What part the editorial columns of the Times may have had in the formation of American public opinion can best be determined by those outside the office. But attention may be called to one editorial, one of the most forceful and important, which has ever appeared in the Times— which deserves special mention as an example of historical and political insight. This article, two columns in length, was written by Charles R. Miller, the editor-in-chief, and appeared on December 15, 1914. It was headed, quote, for the German people, peace with freedom, unquote. That editorial began with the flat statement Quote, Germany is doomed to sure defeat, unquote. It analyzed the military situation, the probabilities of the future, but its argument was founded chiefly on moral considerations, on the belief that the world would not let Germany win, that a German victory meant the negation of all human progress, and that every free people, if forced to the issue, would find itself compelled to resist the German attack on civilization. Yet, the article continued, quote, The downfall of the German empire may become the deliverance of the German people if they will the times but seize and hold their own, Unquote. And then it analyzed the situation of the German people, paying all the cost of the war, sure to endure the consequence of defeat, yet unable to win anything from victory in a conflict which they had undertaken at the command of their rulers and whose issues even if successful would profit those rulers alone if the article continued quote, germany chooses to fight to the bitter end her ultimate and sure overthrow will leave her bled to exhaustion drained of her resources, and under sentence to penalties of which the stubbornness of her futile resistance will measure the severity. We could wish that the German people, seeing the light, might take timely measure to avert the calamities that await them. Unquote. The article created a sensation. It was republished and commented on throughout the world, and is generally regarded as one of the greatest editorials ever appearing in an American newspaper. It is reproduced in full in an appendix to this volume. This analysis of the issue raised by German aggression, of the relations between the German masses and the oligarchy that ruled them, of the only possible escape for the Germans, and the inevitable consequences of refusal to take that way of escape, was justified in every detail by the history of the next four years. Some two years and four months later, the President of the United States came around to these opinions, which he expressed in his speech of April 2, 1917. And a year and seven months after that, the German people were at last convinced of the soundness of this reasoning by the only argument they were able to understand and, unfortunately, too late to be able to escape the penalties of delay. This editorial may stand as a summary of the Times's position on the war, so far as it was purely a European war. New issues were raised in the spring of 1915, both by the sinking of the Lusitania and by Germany's transference of the war, so far as possible, to American soil. But before that had happened, the Times had recognized German aggression as a menace to the whole world, and though continuing to publish all the arguments on the German side, was using all its influence to convince the American people that the world could not let Germany win the war. As has been said, the German propagandists and their American sympathizers already looked on the Times as their chief antagonist, and were flinging at it every accusation, old and new, which their active imaginations could devise. To most of the readers of the paper, these charges were evidently only a satisfying proof that the Germans felt that the times was dangerous. But a good deal can be forgotten in three or four years, and already memory of the ways of German propagandists before 1917 is fading as well as the recollection of the influence which they had, for a considerable time, in circles where they should have been better understood. The culmination of these attacks upon the times came in March 1915, not in a meeting of German singing societies or the Klanagael, but in a hearing before a committee of the United States Senate where all the enmity that had been aroused by the Times' criticism of impromptu statesmanship flared into open view, and all the calumnious whispers that had been spread abroad by persons unable to imagine that any man or any newspaper could advocate any opinions, except for a cash consideration, were dignified by the attention of eminent senators. This episode deserves extended notice, for it is important not only in the history of the Times, but in the history of modern journalism. Perhaps even it has some interest as an illustration of recent tendencies in the United States Senate. Because the editors of the Times had expressed their opinions on some questions of public policy, opinions not altogether in agreement with those of the senators on the committee, they were summoned to Washington and asked if anybody was paying them for those opinions and, if so, who. The pretext for this inquisition, in view of the course taken by the committee, it can hardly be called anything else, was the Times' opposition to the administration bill for the purchase of foreign ships interned in American harbors. The paper opposed this because it opposed the intrusion of the government into business and because it had its doubts whether the purchase in time of war of ships interned to escape capture by the enemy was valid in international law. There was much and reasonable opposition to this measure. The Times had no monopoly of its opinion. But the Senate appointed a committee to inquire, quote, if influence had been exerted. Unquote, against the bill. The possibility that there might be room for two honest opinions on the subject did not seem to occur to the senators. However, this suspicion, if not very creditable to the collective intelligence of the Senate, was at least more legitimate than some of the innuendos with which the members of the committee decorated the sessions devoted to questioning editors of the Times. For the information of the Senators, who displayed a great deal of curiosity about the ownership of the Times, the managing editor furnished not only the list of all persons owning more than 1% of the capital stock, which was published anyway twice a year, but a table showing how much each one of them owned. The discovery that the publisher of the Times owned 62% of the stock that its editor owned something more than 14%, and that nearly half the residue was owned by other persons who had no occupation, excepting contributing their bit toward getting out the times, was apparently something of a disappointment to the committee. But the senators still had a good many questions to ask. The next session of the committee, in which the editor-in-chief was examined, began very much in the form of a class in elementary journalism. The ship purchase bill was forgotten. Senators asked Mr. Miller why the Times opposed parcel posts, why it thought this and that about the railroads and about the trust prosecutions, why certain stories were not put on the front page. The Times by that time was virtually on trial for all its opinions, and its editor no doubt experienced some weariness as he laboriously explained that the editors of a newspaper advocate certain policies because they believe them best for the public interest, that not all the news can be put on the front page, that the relative value of different news stories is a matter of judgment, and that the judgment of all newspapers is not always identical. Having got through this, however, the committee took up another line of argument. Senator T.J. Walsh of Montana, its chairman, asked if the Times had, quote, any business connections of any character in England, unquote. Mr. Miller said that it had none, aside from maintaining its own correspondence there. Then Senator Walsh wanted to know if Mr. Ox had, quote, any financial support of any kind in England, unquote. Mr. Miller said that he had none whatever, whereupon Senator Walsh explained, rather apologetically, quote, I asked because I was informed that that was the case, unquote. Mr. Miller's denial was made still more emphatic by an editorial next day on March 17th, which contained this statement, quote, that there may be no cause to believe that Mr. Miller's answer to the impertinent inquiry about Mr. Ox's private affairs does not fully and satisfactorily end the inquiry, Mr. Ox wishes to make the assertion as broad and sweeping as language will permit that he is in possession, free and unencumbered, of the controlling and majority interest of the stock of the New York Times Company. And has no associate in that possession, and is not beholden or accountable to any person or interest in England or anywhere else in the world, nor has he ever been beholden or accountable in any form, shape, or fashion, financial or otherwise, for the conduct of the New York Times, except to his own conscience and to the respect and confidence of the newspaper reading public and particularly the readers of the New York Times, and more particularly, to the respect and confidence of those who are associated with him in producing the New York Times and expressing its opinions, unquote. The conductors of the Times could say no more on the question of English ownership, but they still had something to say about Senator Thomas J. Walsh, who, quote, had been informed that that was the case, unquote. Who had informed him? The Times asked this question rather insistently, and bit by bit the truth came out. Just before that session of the committee opened, there had come a letter addressed to, quote, the Honorable Chairman, unquote, signed by a name which Senator Walsh read as Arthur M. Abbey. The writer said that he had just come back from England, where he had heard at the Junior Constitutional Club in London that, quote, a well known Englishman has been backing Mr. Ox with money to get control of the New York Times, unquote, and that, quote, I understand that Mr. Miller is also mixed up in some way with this Englishman, unquote. So that nobody would go astray, the writer added. Quote, the name of Lord Northcliffe was mentioned, unquote, and he threw in for good measure that quote, Mr. Ox has also been mixed up in the English Marconi scandal. Unquote. The Times again denied each and every one of these charges and asked for more information about Arthur M. Abbey. Who was he? What did Senator Walsh know about him, that he regarded his communication as sufficiently important to spread on the record of a senate committee the suggestion that the times was controlled by foreigners at the junior constitutional club in london he was unknown and it presently appeared that he was equally unknown to senator walsh the senator finally sent the times the original letter and in the office the handwriting and style were soon recognized as identical with those of a whole series of scurrilous letters which had been coming regularly to the Times office from New York and not from London. Of the hardly legible signatures to these letters, some seemed to resemble G. M. Hubble and others A. M. Abbey. Some of the letters were not signed at all, but they were all abusive, all plainly the work of one writer, and all the work of the same man who had informed senator walsh that quote such was the case unquote no doubt this spreading of the facts upon the record did something to weaken the legend of british ownership of the times this fiction continued to be one of the staples of german irish and socialist argument but it is significant that the next attack made on the times from a source pretending to reputability more than five years later, began with the rejection of all suspicion of outside influence, and developed the entertaining theory that the editors of the Times were simply constitutionally incapable of understanding the truth. It was admitted that they, like all men, needs must love the highest when they see it, but it was argued that they were pretty poor judges of altitude. Perhaps not all enemies of the paper are so generous, but belief in the Northcliffe ownership has in general been confined in recent years to circles where it is still asserted that President Wilson was owned by Wall Street and that Germany fought a defensive war. However, the chief importance of this incident does not lie in its bearing on the reputation of the times. As was said in the paper's editorial columns at the time, quote, this is not a personal issue. It is a question of the extent to which a government's machinery may be privately misused to annoy and attempt to discredit a newspaper whose editorial attitude has become distasteful and embarrassing, unquote. And it was in the name, not of the Times, but of the whole American press, a press which for nearly two centuries had been free from governmental control, that Mr. Miller, at the close of his interrogation by the Committee on the Times's editorial attitude toward every subject of public interest, addressed some remarks to the Committee. Quote, I can see no ethical, moral, or legal right, he said, that you have to put many of the questions you put to me today. Inquisitorial proceedings of this kind would have a very marked tendency, if continued and adopted as a policy, to reduce the press of the United States to the level of the press in some of the Central European empires, the press that has been known as the reptile press, that crawls on its belly every day to the Foreign Office or to the government officials and ministers to know what it may say or shall say to receive its orders. Unquote. Questions of that kind, he said, quote, tend to repress freedom of utterance and to put newspapers under a sort of duress. Unquote. Nor was it to be supposed that newspapers would be free from all restraint if a senatorial committee did not now and then turn aside to give publicity to the commonplaces of German propaganda. Quote, we appear before the jury every day, unquote, said Mr. Miller. Quote, we appear before the Grand Inquisition, one of the largest courts in history. We are judged at the breakfast table. We feel that if we were improperly influenced by anybody outside of the office, there is none so quick to discover that as the reader of the paper. Unquote that the Times in this case was fighting for the freedom of the entire American press was pretty generally recognized. There was much editorial comment on Mr. Miller's statement and on the committee's procedure. The world called the questions, quote, a public inquisition without an open arraignment, unquote. The Baltimore American said that the hearing was, quote, the most extraordinary exhibition of bad judgment, peevishness, or evil motives the country has had from a Senate committee for years, unquote. Bad judgment and peevishness, no doubt, had more to do with it than evil motives. For more than a year thereafter, Congress, a timorous body at best, was extraordinarily sensitive to the compulsions of bought-and-paid-for German propaganda, as witnessed the Gore and McLemore Resolutions only very slowly, in response to the obvious feeling of the country, and under the leadership of a few men of patriotism and courage, did Congress gradually recover the hardihood to call its soul its own. The chief criticism against this particular committee is that it was willing to believe, and to give currency to, anything it heard from anybody, anonymous or otherwise. No doubt the senators took a certain very human joy in getting newspaper editors up before them and putting them through a third degree. No doubt they felt entirely justified by the argument that newspaper editors often criticize senators. But no newspaper ever accused a senator of selling his soul to foreigners on no better evidence than an anonymous letter. End of section 17